Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue our current series, Life Lessons from David, The Man Who Would Be King, with a message called, Learning to Have Courage and Confidence in God. So let's turn to our text in 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 38, with Dr. John Newfound. First Samuel 17 contains one of the most famous stories in the Bible. The drama of David and Goliath has so affected our culture that it has become a metaphor. Anytime the little guy takes on the giant corporation or big government, or anytime someone overcomes seemingly impossible odds, it is compared to David defeating Goliath. Not only has this account captured the imaginations of many people, the account itself is written that way. It's the longest story in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. It contains 22 quotations, making the drama of who said what especially poignant. Goliath makes a long speech. It contains 33 words, and all manner of details fill out this story. Everything from the number of cheeses brought by David, to the weight of Goliath's armor, to the number of stones David brought with him to the battle. In short, the inspired writer wants us to imagine the story well enough that we can picture the account. But why? Is it just because it was so very exciting, which, by the way, it was? But I think not. The Bible wants to make much of this story because it wants to portray David as a man whose great victories came not from the strength of his own hand, but by the power of his God. Like Moses standing before Pharaoh, we are supposed to see that faith in God triumphs against all odds, only because God's power is unstoppable, and those who belong to him and trust him will find that if God is for them, who can be against them? Let's start the story. In the first 11 verses, we will not only see that the stage is set, we will see Goliath, a mighty man, stepping onto the stage of history, and as he steps out onto the stage, we're supposed to see a man who trusts in the arm of the flesh. He represents everything that human beings can do on their own. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now that's the introduction to the drama. We have noticed from 1 Samuel 14 that the main enemies Saul has been fighting were Moab, Ammon, and Edom to the east, and the Amalekites to the south of him, and the Philistines to the west. The Philistines were to represent Saul's most difficult foe. They occupied what is now called the Gaza Strip, a place that still causes Israel so many difficulties today. The Philistines had five heavily fortified city-states, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. A great many scholars believe they originally came from the island of Crete and migrated to the coastal regions of Palestine, where they built their five cities. Some of my hearers may remember Joshua 13, when Joshua is then an old man. God comes to him to tell him that much of the land is yet to be conquered, and then God especially mentions the five cities of the Philistines. Israel is to drive them out. But the Philistines proved to be a very difficult foe. In 1 Samuel 14, we are told how Jonathan, the son of King Saul, led Israel in a great victory over the Philistines at the Battle of Michmash, and the Philistines were effectively driven back to their fortified cities. But now they've been emboldened to enter into the territory of Judah once more. 
The battle line we read of is about 20 kilometers west of Bethlehem, where David, his father, and the family lives. The Valley of Elah, where they lined up against each other, has been identified by archaeologists. It's a valley created by a wadi, or a dry riverbed, that only runs with water in the wintertime. So if you can imagine Israel on the northeastern side of the dry riverbed and Philistia on the southwestern side, you get the picture. The two forces face each other over a ditch, and the wadi forms a kind of no-man's land in between them. The battle represents who will own the land, Israel or Philistia. Okay, we get the picture. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now remember, Gath is one of the five Philistine cities whose height was six cubits in a span. Notice two things. The word champion here might be a technical term. We know that the ancient world had times in which contests took place in which two men from different cultures would fight one another to their deaths. This was a kind of a substitute for all-out war between two armies. Goliath was such a man, and apparently he was very good. He was used to armed conflict with other men, kind of like an ancient gladiator representing your nation. The second thing we notice about him is his immense size. If you can convert the six cubits in a span to our measurement, that would make him nine feet, nine inches tall. Uh, Compare that to the tallest basketball player to ever have played the game, and that's Manute Bowl, who came in at seven foot seven inches. And the Guinness Book of World Records records an American man as the tallest man who has ever measured in the modern era, and that was in 1940, and in that year, he was eight foot 11, still 10 inches shorter than Goliath. This, of course, means the man was immense. If you consider back in Numbers 13, when Moses first sent spies into the land, you'll remember that they said they saw giants there. Now, it may well be that there was some sort of genetic reasons why some among the Philistines were simply massive, and this man was the most massive of them all. Furthermore, as we continue to read, we find him armed to the teeth. Verse 5 and 6 says, He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which was about 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which, by the way, would have meant it had a loop in the end with a cord attached to it. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Now, the spear tip weighed then 15 pounds, and his shield bearer went before him. You should again be getting two pictures. The first is that this man is like a fortified tank. You'd be hard pressed to get close to him. He would take you out long before you ever got close enough to stab him. And if you did get close enough, his armor would prevent you from inflicting a lethal blow. But if you tried to hurl a spear at him or shoot an arrow at him, the shield bearer would immediately intercept all missiles. But the second picture that you get is that he's not fast. He has to be slow. And even if you ran around him, his armor would still be able to take the initial hit. And given the man's reach, you probably wouldn't get away from him. But there's another detail here not mentioned in the text. The average Hebrew fighting man had no armor at all. True, Saul had armor, but the men on the battlefield most likely did not. Furthermore, the armor of Saul did not match what they saw in this man. What they saw in this man represented a technology of warfare that simply was not known before. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were greatly dismayed. Roger Ellsworth paraphrased this taunt. He said it goes like this. I'm a 
pagan God-hating Philistine? And why won't you or any of your men of the living God fight me? See, he's mocking Israel, their God and their confidence in their God. Two chapters ago, we are told that God had rejected Saul as king, and now the man rejected by God faces a man on the battlefield who curses his God, defying his authority, and he gets away with it. No one does a thing. See, one thing's clear. Goliath is counting on his size, his military technology, and his proven ability in hand-to-hand combat. In short, he's counting on human strength, human ability, human resourcefulness. How easy it is to do so. Think of how we do it today. Churches sometimes count on business acumen to run the church or methodologies developed by the brightest minds. I'm reminded how a very popular movement, once called the Church Growth Movement, which was so popular some time ago, to which church leaders all over North America were subscribing to, which promised that the best business principles could grow the church and reach this continent for Christ. But it hasn't ended that way. Human might is always moderated by the power of God. But the same is also true for us individually. How easy it is to trust in our money, our intellect, our education, our talents, even our opportunities as we plan for the future. Goliath, in one sense, represents a man whose confidence is in the flesh. But let me now try to apply this passage from a different angle. What do you do when faced with impossible opposition? When you receive a horrible diagnosis, when you're fired from your job, when your financial investments have failed, when you hear Satan, the great enemy of your soul, saying to you, your God will not help you now. Are you confident in God? Do you believe Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you apply Romans 8.31 to the situations in your life? I mean, to those situations that make every other man or woman fear. Are you known for being confident when anyone else's hands tremble? Can you look at Christ's empty tomb and say, that's all the evidence that I need that nothing can stop the hand of God from acting? Or do you panic like everyone else? Please don't feel too overwhelmed when you find your faith too small. The entire camp of Israel found their faith too small until that young, insignificant shepherd boy showed up the man Samuel anointed as the next king of Israel. And with his coming, everything will then change. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known in the Bible. Indeed, it's a story we've probably heard many times over the years. But I think this introduction has shown that there's much more depth to it than just a simple account of a young sheep herder from Israel overcoming one of the greatest and most fearsome warriors of his time. There's an important faith lesson to be learned for all of us. So join us after the break with Dr. Neufeld as we look further into the story of David. December is wrapping up quickly, and there's only three days left to help Back to the Bible Canada and its associated ministries reach our year-end goal of $517,000. The costs of doing ministry are at an all-time high, but so is the need. So in these challenging days, we depend upon the generosity of like-minded listeners to stand with us in continuing to faithfully teach the Bible without interruption. Your gifts go towards the creation and distribution of print resources, videos, audio programming, purchasing airtime, and so much more. Making God's truth available to as many people within Canada and around the world as possible. Please consider a donation toward our year-end goal You can do that by contacting us at backtothebible.ca or calling 1-800-663-2425. 
2425. First Samuel 17 verses 1 to 11 sets the stage for the drama to follow. We picture Israel and Philistia facing each other over a dry riverbed and walking into no man's land comes Goliath, massive with weapons of warfare that Israel has never known. And he's mocking God. And as this scene is being played out, suddenly the scene changes. Verse 12 says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite, Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. You know, some Bible readers find this phrase redundant, and some critics of the Bible argue that this sentence must indicate two different accounts of David, one where Samuel anoints him as king by the chosen plan of God, and another where David earns his kingship through astonishing acts of bravery and warfare. But all of these things miss the point the writer's trying to make. The reason why David is introduced a second time is to contrast him to Goliath. While we're left impressed by his size and his military strength, we are now being asked to consider David, a man whose genealogy links him to Jesse, to Boaz, and to the promise of God made through Jacob that the ruler's staff will never depart from Judah. On the one hand is Goliath, raw fleshly power. On the other hand is the power of a man who is in covenant with the true and living God, the man chosen by God. And we're supposed to consider what we find more impressive, David or Goliath. What we conclude indicates the state of our hearts. Now, under normal conditions, David would not have come to the battlefield. According to Numbers 1 verse 3, we read, From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And so David's three oldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, are clearly 20 and over and are engaged in the battle. And if the others are younger and David is the youngest, that would mean that five of them are under 20. Now, let's assume just for argument's sake that Jesse and his wife have had a boy every year and that David would be 15 at the time. He is too young to fight. And furthermore, he's called upon to care for the sheep of his father. But the battle line is a mere 20 kilometers from his home. In David's day, the ability to provide for the troops in times of war would have to be borne by people of means around the battle. And so we can imagine David is called upon to provide food for his brothers along with other soldiers in the camp. And as the text tells us, they have been lined up with Goliath taunting them for 40 days. 40 days, tension, humiliation, fear, and a lack of confidence in their God. And as David arrives at the camp of the fighting men, he arrives just in time for a daily spectacle of Goliath cursing Israel and their God. A great many Bible teachers believe that it is quite likely that David, a young man who is nurtured in the faith, who has learned the law of God, and who believes it is a great sin to break the fourth command, you shall not misuse the name of your God, that this David has likely never heard anyone cursing God before. And he now hears it for the first time. He knows, according to Deuteronomy 5, verse 11, that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Furthermore, Goliath is also cursing Israel, and David has been nurtured in Genesis 12, verse 3. Whoever blesses you, you being Abraham and his offspring, whoever blesses the offspring of Abraham, God will bless him. And whoever curses them, God will curse them. And so David, as a man of faith, knows this man is guilty before God and under a curse. Why fear a man like that? And so David talks it up. In verse 26, we read, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine, who takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And in response, they tell David that the man who kills Goliath will be given great riches. He will marry into the royal family and be given the king's daughter in marriage. At this point, we do well to backtrack. Already David is seeing God's hand in his life. Samuel has shown up and anointed him as the next king in Israel. And then amazingly, men from Saul's service show up and ask David to play the harp as Saul seems to descend into darkness. A harmful spirit, some translations say an evil spirit sent from God, is tormenting Saul. That means no more than that God gives a demon permission to torment Saul. God's favor has left the man. But David's harp seems to soothe him. It's doubtful at this moment that Saul has spent any time with David. David would have sat in a corner and Saul would have paid no attention to him at all, only that the music he plays seemed to somehow provide solace when he is tormented. But David has been observing the royal house and he's learning. And now it might be easy for us to imagine that David decides to take on Goliath because he sees this as an opportunity to advance his standing. But the more we study this text, the more that seems unlikely. David is clearly trying to encourage someone, one of the fighting men, into battle with Goliath. After all, Goliath is under God's curse. And furthermore, if one acts in faith, one will be richly rewarded. But there are no takers. And the more David inquires and tries to persuade someone, the more people are quiet. You know, finally, Eliab, David's oldest brother, speaks, and he is angry. He says in verse 28, I know your presumption and the evil in your heart. Now, that word presumption is variously translated from our Hebrew Bible. In Proverbs 11, verse 2, it is translated as pride or even insolence or cheekiness. Eliab believes his brother is looking down on the troops and is being disrespectful to them. And this for Eliab means that David has an evil heart. David does not understand the terrors of military life and is acting with a sense of arrogance. You know, if that were true, David indeed would need to be corrected. But as we've already seen, God rejected Eliab because of his heart. Eliab sees things only as a man sees them. He sees not with the eyes of faith. He only sees what's in front of him. See, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, where Paul declares, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's simply a characteristic of the unspiritual man or woman that sees only the seen. And it is this seen world that is transient, weak, and not as significant as it might seem. But the unseen world is what ultimately matters. Let's take that to Goliath. What was seen has been described, his height and impressive appearance. His armor, his shield bearer, the weapons that are slung across his back and are in his hands, his skill in battle, so that he can be known as a champion, a killer of men in battle. These are the things that any fool can see. What is unseen? Well, those are the promises of God, God's willingness to defend his great name and the covenant he has made with Israel. And David saw this. But Eliab only saw Goliath. And in all of this is the heart of faith. Those who see only what is seen see Jesus on a cross. But those of us who see what is unseen grasp the gospel. Those who see only what is seen see Jesus' broken and mutilated body laid into the tomb while his enemies congratulate themselves. But those who see the unseen world believe Isaiah 53 verse 10, that after the anguish of his soul, he will prolong his days and it anticipates an empty tomb. 
If we're going to live lives that matter, that make a significant impact in our world, we're going to have to see what no one else can see. We're going to have to believe God and face life's great challenges and terrors with courage that knows that God will never abandon his children. We'll have to believe that God keeps his promises and that God defends the greatness of his name. We'll have to go to war with Goliath with a confident trust that our God will never forsake us, never desert us. And that's what a life that matters looks like. And if you today want to live the kind of life that matters in eternity, you'll have to face Goliath with the confidence that comes from an encounter with a living God. That's what faith is. It sees what no one else can because it sees that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor things on earth nor things above, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us both from our God and from the promises that God has made to his children. Heavenly Father, may we see with the eyes of faith. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. John, you've been talking about the seen and the unseen. In essence, those things that we see can sometimes make us stumble. How do you overcome that? Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an important thing for every believer to fix their eyes on what is unseen. I know that sometimes in my own life, I, and I've confessed this um, a number of times, that I have struggled with anxiety, especially in relationship to the future. You know, I look at things that I might not have gotten a grasp on and might say, I mean, how am I going to deal with this challenge that comes? And I begin to live with anxiety. And I'm reminded that that kind of thing actually is sin because uh, we are told in the Bible to be anxious for nothing. And I think we can be anxious for nothing because we know that God cares for us. So I think we can look at, you know, let's say the issue is financial that looks into the future and says, you know, I don't know how we're going to handle this financially. And then just look at the unseen and say, I might be able to see in this very situation how God can teach me how to be calm and how to handle the difficulties in my life with an assurance that he cares for me. Um, We all need to do that. We need to fix our eyes on what is unseen. That's where faith comes from. What a great message this has been as we've gotten a deeper insight into the story of David and Goliath. Both these characters represent two completely opposite ways of looking at the world, one through the lens of an unwavering trust in God and the other in a singular dependence on human power and wisdom. I hope that you've been encouraged and perhaps even confronted with the reality of your faith and where it stands at this moment. Join us tomorrow as we continue following the exciting development of the life of David here in our series with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada isn't just a ministry but a community of like-minded followers of Jesus who have a passion to see God's Word faithfully taught across the nation. To that end, we wanted to take a second to thank all of you who engage with this ministry through your comments, feedback, words of encouragement, and even biblical questions. It means so much when you, you take the time out of your busy days to share your thoughts. Your feedback helps us to grow, improve, and tailor our content to better serve you on your faith journey. So we encourage you to check out our YouTube and social media pages and to leave a comment or a question today. We thank you in advance. For more information or to bless the ministry with a gift, 
just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.